For those of you who heard Reckoning's episode 21, featuring Anwen and Samir, and episode 22, featuring an imaginary Pope Francis, I was not planning to come right back to the topic of sexual abuse. But Susan and Gil were willing to share their story with us, and it is just too potent and too timely not to tell. This time I'm going to put the content warning up front. What you're about to hear contains non-consensual sexual activity. It's not graphic, and it's not violent, but it is non-consensual. And with that, this is Reckonings, an exploration of how we change our hearts and minds. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and this is Susan. It's a little bit like a fish talking about water because it's so um, mundane isn't the right word, but ever-present, our faith. And this is Gil. About the time I was maybe nine years old, I started articulating that I thought I wanted to be a priest. My image of priesthood was kind of a community organizer. Um, In churches where the parishioners are nourished and fed in order for them to go out into the world and do the work of the church and the world, bringing the message of love and compassion out into the world. Gil and Susan grew up in the Twin Cities. They both went to Catholic schools. At the beginning of Susan's junior year of high school, she gave a presentation to all incoming faculty. I was wearing a black shirt with a very long collar because it was the 70s, and uh, a jumper that I borrowed from my oldest sister. Um, And, you know, I felt pretty cool. When I exited the little theater, there was, you know, kind of cookies and juice sort of around and people were mingling and a new teacher was there and came up to me and began talking to me about my presentation. She was cheerful and forthcoming and bright and, um, one thing I remember is I had to keep backing up because my per- I felt um, she was much closer than Minnesotans usually stood. So I kept backing up, and eventually I was back against the wall. She kept finding me in school and asking me to come and have lunch with her in her room. And I had a book of poetry. I had a book of Yevtushenko's poetry, actually. I remember the poem I was reading, Bobby Yar. Um, And I had it with my books in the student council room. And she said, oh, you're reading poetry? And I said, yes. And I think she asked me if I knew who E.E. Cummings was. And I did. And I think she shared a poem with me, like out of memory. And I was very impressed because, you know, memorizing a poem is impressive. And I remember the poem. I sing of Olaf glad and big. It was an anti-war poem. Well, I was impressed. God, I was, you know, um, 
here was this sort of heroic person. I had a lot of respect for teachers, and I thought um, a lot of them. And I knew she was a former nun. And um, I often nun thought I might want to be one. Meanwhile, Gil did become a priest. He was ordained at age 26 and assigned to a parish just outside St. Paul. Gil arrived in mid-June, but on the 4th of July, the head priest had a heart attack. And for whatever reason, the archdiocese didn't send in a temporary administrator. They decided that 26-year-old Gil, one month ordained, could cover the work of two priests and single-handedly run a parish of a thousand families. I discovered I loved to preach, and the feedback I got was that I was good at it. Um, you know, when in the hardest of moments, a death, a suicide in a family, or, or joyous moments like weddings, baptisms, birth of children, it's like I had, I was given full entree to share people's lives in the most important moments, and I was in love with it. But it was exhausting. Um, I just remember kind of always doing something. It was like, okay, here I am, another couple to get ready for marriage. Oh, here we are, another couple that's struggling with their marriage. Oh, here we are, I'm doing baptism preparation. So it was like a lot of things to do, constant stream of things to do. I just felt like, oh, man, what do I get? I give and I give and I give and what do I get? And what I started to get was um, sexual fantasy and the sexual fantasy focused on boys in the parish. I think when I was about 21 and senior in college, was when I realized that I had this sexual attraction to boys. And I was getting older and these boys were staying about the same age, 12, 13, 14 years old. I would feel like, you know, it's okay. I'm doing all this hard work, so it's okay if I do this fantasy, if I masturbate to this fantasy. She asked me if I would go out to supper with her. Susan had been spending more and more time with that new teacher. I said I could, you know, I um, asked my parents if I could, and they thought that would be okay. Um, I remember the restaurant we went to, and um, she gave me this book of poetry. Uh, by E.E. E. Cummings. And then when we were going to go out, um, I remember walking out and going to the parking lot and um, getting in the car and her saying to me, are we friends? Well, I said, yeah. And she said, can friends do anything with friends? And I said, well, I guess, I think so. And um she laid down on top of me and kissed me. I had not done any kissing 
up to then. And she quit when uh, some uh, restaurant worker came out to empty the trash in the dumpster in front of the car we were parked at and looked in. And subsequent to that, uh, drove me to her home. I said, my folks won't, I, I can't stay overnight. My folks won't let me stay overnight. And she said, I'll tell them it's okay. And I said, I, 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 don't, I don't think I should stay overnight. But it was uh, far away from where I, I was another suburb. So it was not where I lived. And uh, so I went downstairs. And she continued from where she'd left off in the car. I remember laying there and I remember being scared. I remember thinking, what the hell? This other person thinks it's okay to touch me um, all over my body. And I don't understand what's going on, and I don't understand why we're not sleeping. I don't understand um, why she's kissing me, grabbing me, um, putting her hands in my pants. Um, my understanding of what she was doing was um, sexual intercourse, which is you know something I'd read about. I was terrified that I was in a situation that somehow I must be responsible for, but I had no control over. That somehow, all along the way, I must have done something wrong. You know, I didn't hit her, I didn't fight back, I didn't do any of that. My brain was on fire. And I got up in, uh, from the bed and walked out into the hall and went into the bathroom. And I found a razor. And then I thought, Catholics can't kill themselves. And I went back into the bedroom. I was on a... Uh, field trip with a group of the altar boys at the parish and we went to a local amusement park and there was oh I don't know 20 25 boys and probably two or three adults and myself uh, as the chaperones and there was this one boy and he was one of the altar servers these were all altar servers and um, he, he he was kind of an a clinger, a needy kid in a way. Um, uh, and so he was hanging out with me the whole day. And um, on one of the rides, we were in a car together or whatever, and I slipped my hand between his legs. And, you know, he didn't object to it. And... 
So as the day went on, we were on these various rides, and more often than not, they're two-person rides. So I kept doing it and um, and feeling his 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 penis, and um, and the fact that he didn't seem to respond negatively said to me um, that he must be okay with it. I I knew it was wrong to do that. That I was taking advantage. This kid had served mass. It was pretty clear, you know, he liked me, looked up to me. Um, and there was a certain sense of danger, too. Well, what if he reacts negatively? What if he tells one of the adults, oh, my God, then what? You know, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. And afterwards, you know, when I got home that night, it was like, oh, my God, what have I done? This is awful. Hmm. It's probably like 13, maybe 14. I would have been about 20, 29, maybe 30. The urge was constant. The urge to, to have sexual interaction with these young teenage boys. Um, either I would push against it or not, but the urge was constant. The acting on the urge um, was more sporadic. Some of it was uh, dependent on availability, you know, would I be you know, with with a boy where I could, you know, give him a hug and maybe kind of, you know, sneak a, you know, squeeze in or touch his butt or whatever. Um, but there certainly wasn't a month that went by that I didn't have two, maybe three instances of some kind of inappropriate touch of boys. What I knew was that this wasn't right. Uh, I didn't delude myself into thinking I'm teaching this boy about sex or, um, nor even necessarily that, you know, that this is something he likes. You know, was I curious about it? Did I want to learn about it? Well, no. Um, I was mostly ashamed. It's like, you know, why, why am I having this sexual attraction? Yeah, so it wasn't, it, there wasn't a lot of consciousness around this. There was a ton of suppression going on. I didn't want it, and I was trying to get rid of it, and I was trying to push it down, which just kept feeding it. I... I felt awful that I was doing this. And yet it just felt like I can't stop. I took on that it was my fault. I can't go to school. I feel sick all the time. I'm in school. I feel sick. 
I'm with my family, I feel sick. I'm with her, I feel sick. I feel crazy, and I, and I feel trapped. One night over the summer, Gil went to the house of the boy he'd abused at the amusement park, who had become his primary victim. And I drove over to his house, and... Um, and his parents were there, and so I chatted with his parents, and he was sleeping out on a porch, or at least he that's, you know, kind of claimed that space as a place for him to sleep, and he was already out there. So I chatted with his folks for a while, and um, he had come into the house at some point, knew I was there, and and he said to me, I want, you know, come out and see me before you go. And um, I'm thinking, okay. So now it's literally, it's probably about 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And so I go out into the porch, and he had a little cot on the porch. And uh, um, he touched me in my groin. Um, and, um, and I... Um, Uh, he, he asked me he asked me if I would lie down with him on this cot and I said no I can't do that um, I was terribly afraid of you know what would happen if his parents came out and the two of us are lying on his cot and so I was at that point I just need to get out of here and he um, you know and you know, kind of reached for my, you know, my pants, my groin. Um, but I, guy offered to give him a blowjob, and but he said he wanted to give me a blowjob, and um, and I'm like, oh my god, this is craziness. So, but um, he did um, start that, and um, I was sitting on a chair next to this cot, and I was holding his head, um, and so I, you know, I thought, man, I got to get out of here, and I did stop him because it, it was like mostly out of fear. I mean, it's like, my God, you know, any moment his parents could come out to see why, what's taking me so long. So I stopped it and said, I've got to go. You know, zipped up my pants and snuck out to my car. Let's just be really clear that not fighting a sexual advance from another person, and even enjoying it, and even soliciting it, does not necessarily imply consent. Under circumstances in which one party is underage, and there is a major asymmetry of power, which was the case for both Gil and Susan, there may be no such thing as meaningful consent.
Susan ran away to Omaha. She took a bus and spent the rest of her money on a motel and woke up the next morning to realize it was too cold to hitchhike any farther. She was scared to be so far away from home by herself. And so she called a friend, who then called the teacher. Her friend had no reason not to. Everyone knew they were close, including Susan's parents, who the teacher had told she'd kept Susan overnight for extended counseling. And the teacher volunteered herself to pick Susan up in Omaha, Nebraska, and bring her home to St. Paul, Minnesota. Of course, it was jarring to be getting in her teacher's car. But Susan was relieved to be going home. I fell asleep in the car. Um, I, I thought we'd get home about after supper is all I had it coded, but by that time my folks knew I was coming. Um, I woke up and we were pulling into her driveway, not my folks' driveway. And she said, I, I, I just can't drive anymore. And, uh, took me into the same house, the same bedroom. And I know that there was sexual activity that night. I know that it happened and I don't remember it at the same time. I laid in the bed. I didn't sleep. I was afraid. I knew I w couldn't stop this. I knew that in her bathroom was a razor. And I went in to that bathroom. And I took the razor and I cut my left wrist with it. I wanted out. I didn't want to kill myself, but I didn't know how to get out. I was bleeding, and she must have awakened, came to the, to the bathroom door and knocked, and I opened the door, and, and she looked in, and she saw the razor, and she saw my wrist, and she said, give me your wrist, and bound it up. Susan didn't sleep that night. And in the morning, her abuser finally took her home. The, the bandage was full of blood. I had not shown my folks, but my mother saw it. My mother put her arm, my mother's a nurse. My mother put her arm around me and said, Susie, we're going to take you to the hospital because we've got to do something to keep you. Not long after the incident on the porch, Gail got an invitation to meet with the vicar general, basically the second in command to the bishop. So I walked in. Uh, to his office, I sit down, and uh, the vicar general um, 
hands to me uh, a letter and he says, I'd like you to read this. And it was addressed to me and it was written by my primary victim. And in it, he was, um, he described some of the sexual behavior we had engaged in. Um, but I read it and I hand the letter back to the vicar general and he pauses and then he says, well, what do you have to say? I could deny this. I'm, I'm a very believable, credible person. And this 15, 16 year old boy could be disbelieved. And I could, I could say, no, 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 I have no idea what he's talking about. Am I going to deny this letter or am I going to acknowledge that what this boy is saying is true? I don't want to keep running away from this. It's time to turn and face what I have done, no matter what the consequences are. And so I, when I handed the letter back and he asked, what, what did I have to say? I said to him, it's true. And then he says, well, um, you're going to need to probably talk to the archbishop about this and they'll be some steps we'll have to take and and I said okay um, so I walked out of the chancery and got into my car which was a tiny little Dodge Colt a little tin can of a car and I got on Interstate 94 heading east out of St. Paul and was driving at 70 miles an hour and I thought to myself I could just turn this car into a bridge abutment and it would seem like an accident and I'd be dead. Because I thought everything that mattered to me, the priesthood that I love so much, was going to be gone. I couldn't imagine that anyone, my family or friends, anyone, could hear of this behavior and think of me as anything but a piece of shit. Think of me as anything but despicable. And so I thought, well, what if I just put it into it? I kept driving and driving and driving and 15, 20 miles later, I was at the Wisconsin border and by now, the, the impetus to kill myself had quieted, and I turned around and drove back to the, the place where I was living and tried to figure out what's next. I was not telling the psychiatrist what had gone on. I did not tell my folks what had gone on. Well, and I couldn't betray her. She had told me that terrible things would happen to her. She would go to prison. And I didn't want to be responsible for, for her going to prison. Susan spent most of the fall and the beginning of winter in the psych ward at the hospital, where she was given a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. 
Shortly before Christmas 1970, she was released from the hospital to the custody of her parents and went home. And when I got back to school after Christmas, um, the teacher was gone. My abuser was no longer teaching there. I enjoyed school. I loved being sort of involved in student government. Um, I was very interested in leadership kinds of activities. And, uh, and I quit them all when I got back to school. Everybody walked on eggshells because they didn't know what I would do next because of course they didn't know what had happened in the first place. I lost the easy intimacy that I had with my siblings and my parents, but they, it all got shattered. Um, everybody watched me like, when is she gonna take a razor to herself next? I had no joy, I had no um, energy, I, I had difficulty sleeping, I had intrusive thoughts, I was, was having a hard time getting up and going to class. And, and I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't make, I couldn't put it together, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. Who I knew myself to be prior to August of 1982 was this talented, up-and-coming, bright boy priest who could do anything and proved it by running a parish two weeks ordained. All that was gone, and now it's, who the hell am I? Who Gil was, was a highly publicized, convicted felon. During his five-year tenure at the parish, he'd abused four boys, ranging from 10 to 15 years old. He was sentenced to one and a half years in state prison, plus 10 years of supervised probation. He also went into therapy. He started reading accounts of victims of sexual abuse to learn about the kind of impact he'd had on his own victims. And friends who themselves were victims started reaching out to him, asking for help understanding why someone would do something like this. Susan had started drinking heavily. She'd had another stay in a psych ward and was now on her second attempt at college. I was living in an apartment above a store in Morris, Minnesota, while I was attending college there. Uh, I believe it was late fall, kind of mid-afternoon, when I got a phone call, and... When I picked up the phone and answered it, there was silence for a moment. And then I heard this, hello, I'm going to be coming to Morris tomorrow. And I, it took me a minute to recognize the voice, but my body probably recognized it before I did, because I remember sliding down the wall and sitting down on the floor. And... I said, coming here for what? 
and she went on to tell me something about she was in the area for work and wanted to see me. Finally, I said no. I just said no. And she proceeded to tell me that we could go out to dinner, she'd take me to dinner, and I just said no. Don't call me again. And then I hung up. Susan's teacher had abused her through the end of high school and for another four years afterwards. But after that phone call, the abuse stopped. Susan finally went into rehab, and it was her counselor who introduced her to an idea she had never considered. She said, you were abused. Really, my jaw kind of hit my knees and I just looked at her. It was for a moment that somebody thought it was somebody else's fault. And I'd been thinking it was my fault. It was really oh, thunderish, kind of, in a good way. And it freed me to start dealing with what had happened to me and calling it by name. Oh no, that's not how this story goes. This is how this story goes. You are not the author of this story anymore. I am. I was angry. I walked a fine line for a while. I started reading the Bible for one. I was reading about uh, grief and sorrow and redemption and hope. There has to be redemption after horror. There has to be a way to repair. Restorative justice is everywhere in uh, the Christians, well, in the Hebrew tradition as well. Although not by that name, restorative justice is everywhere in the Christian and Jewish traditions because it embodies Christian and Jewish values of mercy and forgiveness and redemption. By that name, restorative justice is a response to crime that engages offenders and victims in repairing the harm that was caused. Susan knew she wanted to learn more. And so she dove into the literature and got a local professor to mentor her and started going to trainings on restorative justice. When Gil got out of jail, he couldn't go back to being a priest in a setting where there were kids around. So he started doing administrative work for the archdiocese. But he was offered a position as a priest in a monastery of nuns, where he had no contact with children, and everyone knew his story. He actually told his story to the entire community of nuns. So I laid out the abusive behavior and all this and sisters listened very quietly and very patiently and kindly and when all was said and done they were breaking kind of they were going back to the inside the the monastery into the cloister and one of the sisters stopped and 
tugged on my arm and said, Gil, thank you for, for sharing all that and being so honest and so straightforward. She said, you know, you probably look at us and think, here's this bunch of holy ladies. Well, we all have stories, too. One day, um, the rectory phone rings. Um, you know, so I pick it up and I say, you know, hello, St. Peter's. And on the other end is my primary victim. And what he said was, I want to, I want to, I want to talk with you. And, and he said, but I, I want, I want, I want to get together with you. And I want you to see me. He said, I forgive you. I'm sorry. This is my fault. You didn't do anything wrong. That's the message I would have liked to have been able to give him. The terms of Gill's probation meant that there was no way he could meet with his primary victim. Soon after that phone call, Gill was invited to speak at a conference on sex abuse in religious settings. Right before it was his turn to speak, a young man told his own story about being abused by an Episcopalian priest. So he finished, and then it was my turn to speak. And uh, I walked up there, walked to the podium, and I thought, oh, God, these folks have just heard this incredibly painful story. You know, here's the guy that causes that kind of pain going to talk. And I remember the young man took his place kind of right in front of the podium. So I'm staring right at him as I'm giving my uh, my account, my talk. And, and I remember speaking directly to him and saying, you know, that I am sorry he had been abused as one who had abused boys myself. I was sorry that he had been abused and that I wanted him to know that it had never been his fault. There are moments when you're speaking, giving a talk or preaching, when the room gets very quiet and you can almost hear or feel people listening. And that's what was happening when I, I apologized to this young man for the pain that had been caused to him. All of a sudden the room was really dialed in. When I was sexually acting out, when I was abusing boys, I would have these moments of being afraid of what happens if somebody finds out I'm doing this. I was afraid of consequences like being thrown out of priesthood, um, perhaps having to deal with the police and the court system. And then I'd, I'd kind of creep up on my fear about, oh my God, what if I go to jail? What if this gets in the press and then everybody knows? You know, that I haven't been thrown out of priesthood, but the other consequences all came true. And they were painful, but each and every one had a gift. Having the court of law judge my behavior was liberating. While it was painful to be in jail, it too became 
a gift. A penalty was imposed and I fulfilled that penalty. And well, I'm sure there are some uh, for whom I represent despicable behavior and they would wish I didn't exist. I discovered that there were quite a number of people in my life who could um, hear this about me and still love me, still stay in relationship with me. I did this. It's nobody's fault but mine. I misused my position of power to get my needs met. And I must accept responsibility. And once we do that, once we accept our own personal responsibility, you can say, okay, now I've got to change. Holding people responsible and giving them to understand what it is that got them there, where the way they are, that's the place of change. Don't spare your offenders their consequences. Don't spare the consequences. You're doing your offender no favors. The consequences can be the path to heal and become whole. So I finished and I could tell people were really hearing me and there was applause and it was time for lunch. So I got off the podium and the young man was still standing there and some people were chatting with him and some people were chatting with me and, and he turned to me and he said, um, thank you for what you said. Would it be okay if, if we hugged? And I said, oh yes, and we did. Meanwhile, Susan was looking for her own restorative encounter. She reached out to the religious order that her abuser had been part of as a nun. But eventually, they just got their law firm to make her go away. And so she contacted the archdiocese, which had employed Susan's abuser as a teacher at her Catholic high school, and still had some degree of jurisdiction over her. This time, she got a meeting with the Vicar General, Kevin McDonough. And he said, do you want to meet with this person? And I said, yes, I do. I remember the whole week before the meeting, I worried, I fretted, I didn't sleep, I had nightmares. I wondered if I was going to quit on myself. I chose my clothing. I wore my best power suit from my professional life. And I made a copy with big enough print and some space between so I could read the what I had to say because I knew it was going to be very difficult to do. And so I knew I'd have to read it. She walked into the room with a winter coat on. Kevin sat her down across uh, the other side of the table, and he sat at the head of the table, and he kind of made some introductory remarks. And he said that Susan is going to um, talk about uh, whatever she has to say to you. And then I 
went ahead and I spoke. I, I was shaky. Um, I didn't break down. I didn't cry. It wasn't really being taken in. It was sort of being survived. Like she was just sort of showing up, but not really there. And eventually she said, I'm sorry that this happened to you. Which I thought was an odd way to put it because she wasn't taking any responsibility. She had no sorrow that I know of. My youth was stolen. What had been taken from me was the agency to determine the trajectory of my own young life. And I couldn't get them to the table of restorative justice. Restorative justice requires an encounter that is meaningful. And I couldn't get people to the table. And so I was mad. I would rant and rave in my head or to friends about how unfair and how unjust all of this was. Why should I not, you know, do some kind of an expose of what had happened? I was going to go public with what they did. I was going to go sue them. I was going to, you know, just a lot of loose talk. I would rather be free. I would rather not drag those chains behind me anymore. Forgiveness is about me, it's not about her. Forgiveness is about my, my choices. And I have forgiven and forgiven and forgiven that same person many times. Casting her out or anyone out of community is like taking away their opportunity to get better. And it's important to me that we all have the opportunity to get better. There's, there has to be a road back from even that kind of terrible behavior. There has to be light for them to come back toward. Or why come back? Why change? At the end of what I told her, I told her that forgiveness was freedom for me and that I forgave her. She did not look up. It was a Saturday in June of 2002. I was near a little lake in St. Paul for some reason. And I got in my car and I turned on the radio and I think they made some reference about the bishops meeting in Dallas and that they had proclaimed a zero tolerance policy. And I thought, I'm done. 
What happened at the bishops' meeting in Dallas was that they'd passed the Dallas Charter, which is basically a set of rules for dealing with priests who've committed sexual abuse. It includes a policy of zero tolerance, which means that any priest who's been credibly accused must be removed from ministry. By the time the Dallas Charter came along, Gill had been in recovery for 20 years. I believe I called the sister who was in charge of the community and made some reference to the bishops' meeting in Dallas, and I, and I said, I think this may well be the last, Sunday would be the last time I would say Mass. And uh, I said, what I would like to do is I want to preach the gospel. I want to be able to preach one more time. And I preached. And then after communion, I got up to the, and said, you know, my presumption is that this will be my last Sunday with you because of the Dallas Charter. And I just said, you know, it's, it's, I, by then, of course, I was all choked up. And I just said, you know, it's been such a gift for me to be able to be here with you. I never said a public mass again. When I look back over my years, 25 years, I functioned as a priest for 25 years. It was the center part of my life. I had had parish ministry gone because of, as a rightful consequence of my bad behavior. And I was given this second chance to be able to be a, a pastor of sorts to this community of sisters who believed so deeply in and they said to me, a very publicly broken, sinful man, we want you to lead us in prayer. In the beginning, I pushed back against it and said, this isn't right, this isn't fair. I've done all you've asked me to do. The structure of my life as a priest in the church helps to guarantee safety. And it felt like it was a one-size-fit-all solution by the bishops doesn't my hard work and therapy and and living living out a safe life doesn't that count for anything it was the hardest consequence i've ever faced that was far more painful to me than jail time or having my name in the press or anything else it's the deepest grief of my life. So in the beginning, I was very angry about that. Over time, I've come to be able to say that this is another consequence of my behavior. If I hadn't sexually abused the boys, none of this would have happened. This is a consequence of my behavior.
we met over at the Egg and I, didn't we? No. No. Keys. Keys, of course. Yes. Well, similar. Similar. Similar, but diners. Diners, yeah. Susan and Gil met not at the Eganai, but at Keeves to talk through a presentation they were invited to give at the Minnesota Department of Corrections. But Susan and Gil had initially met a couple years earlier at a local conference on the treatment of sex offenders. Susan spoke on a panel, and Gil introduced himself to her afterwards. They realized they were both interested in restorative justice. And so they jumped at the opportunity when a couple years later, they were invited by the Minnesota Department of Corrections to present to their staff. And their presentation went so well that they met up to talk about doing it again. My recollection was you inviting me to come to a a breakfast meeting at the Egg and I. Oh gosh, that's where the Egg and I comes in. That's Uh, correct. And I don't know that we had the name Uncommon Conversation yet, but this idea of... What kind of a process could we design that would allow people to finally talk about sex abuse in the Catholic Church? What kind of a process would allow people to finally talk about sex abuse in the Catholic Church? That question led Susan and Gil to host their first Uncommon Conversation in November of 2012. The intention of Uncommon Conversation was to apply restorative justice not to one-on-one healing between abuser and victim, but to group healing within the Catholic community. Susan and Gill gathered a local group of survivor advocates and social workers and faith leaders and other community members to talk through three questions. The first question was, how has the abuse issue affected you? Second question was, what is the way forward for you and what is the way forward for For the the church? church? The third question, what about our conversation today gives you hope? The Uncommon Conversation ended by asking participants for feedback. And the feedback was extraordinary. People were emotionally exhausted, but they were also enormously relieved to finally talk through the sex abuse crisis in a way that was open and personal and oriented towards finding a way forward. So Susan and Gil did a second Uncommon Conversation. And then they went for a third, this time reaching out to the people at the top of their archdiocese. But the church leadership was not so receptive. The main criticism was that we had a survivor and a perpetrator working together. Right. That was the main criticism. How do you do restorative justice when you don't have all the points of the, of the circle in the room? The Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis was actually mandated to use restorative justice as a result of lawsuits brought against it for failing to protect vulnerable people from sexual abuse. But even with that mandate, church leadership wouldn't touch uncommon conversation because Gil was involved. With the lawsuits against the archdiocese and the archdiocese going into bankruptcy to pay settlements, and the archbishop being asked to resign by the Vatican for himself allegedly committing abuse, the climate in the Twin Cities became inhospitable 
to Susan and Gill's collaboration. So Susan and Gill put their uncommon conversation in quiet mode. Why do priests commit sexual abuse? There are so many answers to that question, but a simple one is because they have the power. Gil talks about the experience of being given that power, of being 26 years old and called father by someone twice his age. And Gil also says that when he had that power taken away, and became a priest for a community of nuns who put him on no pedestal and knew precisely how broken he was, he became a better preacher. That seems both obvious and beautiful, that by letting go of some of the power that contributes to clergy sex abuse, a priest can become better at his actual job. Paraphrasing an imaginary Pope Francis from Reckonings episode 22, clergy abuse their power in ways that deny the words they recite. This crisis of clergy sex abuse is their opportunity to share that power and be better vessels for the divine. In the fall of 2015, Spotlight came out. The film tells the story of how the Boston Globe exposed widespread clergy sex abuse in the Boston area. And the following year, Spotlight won the Oscar for Best Picture. Susan and Gill took the momentum from that and brought Uncommon Conversation back online with a screening of Spotlight. Then they did a second screening and then a third in December of 2018. At that point, the lawsuits against their archdiocese had finally been settled, and the archdiocese was finally coming out of bankruptcy, and the local climate for restorative justice was becoming a little more hospitable again. We're starting to get calls from people from a, n- a number of places just in the last couple of weeks. You, you're you one of them, actually. Right. Uh, I think- <laughs> so I'm, I'm a part of this now. Yes, yeah. you are. Uh, <laughs> screening, screening. Today, Susan and Gil are finally organizing that third uncommon conversation. And this time it's going to be at an actual parish, which would be like hosting a dialogue about mass incarceration at a prison. There's a wonderful life after you do your work about this, and for that not to be part of the story is a crime. If you get help and if you do your work, it becomes a part of your story, not your entire story. We get together every couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it goes much beyond the couple of weeks for yeah, us. I mean, right. We have breakfast at the same local restaurant. Right. And we live roughly in the same neighborhood. So. Yeah, we're only a couple of miles apart. A couple of miles apart. 
And, and, and I'll share things with you that I see on the internet. You share things right. with me. Yeah, we email so, a lot. So there's a lot of email going on. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't cut the people of God in two. Susan Pavlak lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she's retired. She spends her time with her family and her parish and on working to bring restorative justice to clergy sexual abuse. She still has to forgive and re-forgive her abuser, but she's many decades sober and says her life is beautiful. Gil Gustafson lives just a couple miles away from Susan. He was forced into early retirement by renewed publicity of his story in 2013. So he spends most of his time collaborating with Susan and volunteering on issues he cares about, including restoring the right to vote and removing barriers to employment for people with felonies. Gil is confident he would never abuse again, but he still has the attraction. So he's careful about how he navigates proximity to children and is almost always in the company of people who know his story. An extra big thank you to Susan and Gil, who haven't told their story in this depth in a really long time. Telling the most intimate and painful experiences of their lives is hard work. Oh my God. Lord love us. <laughs> this is some of the hardest work I ever do. It's, it's never easy. Big thank yous also go to The Gilead Project, the 501c3 which houses Susan and Gill's Uncommon Conversation and is dedicated to healing and preventing sexual abuse. To the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice, which promotes forms of justice that are equitable, sustainable, and socially constructive. To the brilliant folks who shared their insights, Helena DeGroote, Janine Gensky, Peter Isley, and Phil Saviano. And to a few of our friends on Patreon, you too can join this list of esteemed supporters at patreon.com slash reckonings. Abigail Farrell, Greg Bergig, Trevor Stutz, Tibet Sprague, Kenny Alston, Kyle Studstill, Rose Holes, P. Foster, Leffrey Whitbrod, Jordan A. Patterson, and Christopher. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and if you made it all the way here, let me give one more thank you to you for listening to Reckonings.